Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Daily Planet Productions podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman and ah, 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 ah. As you said, this is the podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of, oh, I, I forgot to write this thing. Funny things that I was supposed to write but didn't, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this novel. And this week, we are jumping into Arc 5 Shadow with the first three chapters, chapter 5.1 through 5.3. And Matt, um, we're moving into some action now. We we had a long arc of setup, and now we are ready to do some, some fighting. Yeah, yeah, uh, very kind of slow build of of uh, foreboding, paranoid um, tension of of lots of mysterious things going on under the surface. We're not sure what is just our characters being paranoid and and what is what is real. There's there's so much stuff in these chapters that has has spawned a tremendous amount of discussion on the various forums about what what's going on here and uh we're gonna we're gonna talk about that not that we're gonna have any answers but it's gonna be fun to talk about no yeah and i think that's true that shows i mean the difference between a cape battle in ward and a cape battle in worm is that here you're absolutely right we don't really know what's going on we're questioning things we're we're unsure about what motivations are both within our team and without our team um and it's it, it's it's tough to it's challenging to come in here and try to look at the text and, and analyze what you think is going to come. I mean, there are there are moments when you can see things are being set up and and those narrative elements are there to to get you in a certain state of mind and to and to set up something to come. But what exactly that is remains a a wonderful mystery. Yeah, yeah. And there's enough red herrings that no one can really be sure of anything, but it's definitely yeah. Byron. <laughs> no, it's totally Aaron. Okay. All right. All right. Um, yeah, so let's let's get into it. I, I'm very excited. Yeah. So first, some announcements. Uh, as, as everyone knows, we have our quarterly uh, fan art contest, and so we're announcing kind of the, the first phase of the, the next round, the We've Got Ward fan art contest. Uh, and the theme this time is uh, the Misfit Toys, which, you know, name to be replaced by their actual <laughs> name. I mean, if and when that happens, even if it even, like I, I feel like for me, it's going to be that name for <laughs> the rest of the book. Whether I mean, they're going to get their own name eventually, but this is this is what I have dubbed them. And, and it's sticking. All it's right. Sticking. It it fills me with so much glee when I see other people use that name. Like, I know there's a, a strong contingent of team therapy people out there. Um, I like my name better. Oh, yeah. No, me too. Me too, yeah, Scott. I think we're trying to be a little more uh, broad with this the theme this time. So we really were just saying the Misfit Toys is, is meant to be uh, interpreted. What, what do you want it to be? Do you want to show, uh, uh, do you want to make a picture of the team together? Do you want to show a specific person on the team? Um, the, there is a, a good amount of, of ward fan art but we want to help be part of that and so we want to to allow this to be a little more open so you can create this is a good excuse for for the artists out there to create something they've been wanting to do but just need an excuse for it so 
do whatever you want with it. Show however many or, or few of the characters within our main team as you want. And, and they can be in their hideout. They can be out on patrol. They do it, do whatever you want. Yeah. yeah. Something that we would never think of. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it occurs to me that people might be unfamiliar with this contest that we run. Um, so yeah, the, oh, yeah, the, pe- the people who get to vote on the, on the winner are our patrons, um, our, our Patreon patrons. And the prize is a cash prize of, what was the cash prize again? Is fifty dollars. Fifty dollars. Yeah, that's right. And a signed copy of your art that wins. Yeah. So we print out a nice, um, colorful, wonderful uh, printout of your art. We ship that off to to Wildbow, which Matt, we still need to do that for the last person. We do. Well, we, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on it, Scott. <laughs> um, and then, um, and then he will send it back. We'll pay for all that postage, and then we will send it out. To, to the winner themselves so you get a nice signed version of your art with uh, the, the the man's signature himself so i think that's a really cool thing and i think it just encourages this the some great artwork too i've been really happy with the things that we've gotten in the past um yeah me too it's all it's been great yeah all right moving on uh, so i we- guess we should say there will be details on um by the time you all are listening to this there will be details as far as the rules, um, the specifics of the prizes and how you submit it and where you submit it to and all those things, um, that'll be on the dailyplanetfilms.com website. By the time you're listening to this, it'll be up. And we are saying, just so you guys know, the contest, the due date for the contest is April 4th. It is a Wednesday. And um, it's, uh, I think it's five weeks from now. I think we're giving them five weeks this month. Five Wednesdays, rather. I don't know if okay. that's five weeks. I- It'll be then. April 4th, 2018 is the, the cutoff um, at, at midnight. So um, get get uh, get working. Yeah, get artin'. Artin'. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, we didn't got Ward. Uh, nothing this week. I don't think we made any egregious mistakes last time. Yeah, we got it. We got Ward. Yep. And moving on, uh, Community Spotlight, where we read what people wrote from last week's thread, beginning focusing just on responses to the discussion question, which, if you recall, was, we now have a better understanding of the fallen. Can any of these people be rescued or redeemed? Can rain? I loved this question, Matt, and I was hoping that this would be ripe for discussion amongst the community, and they proved they proved me right. They They did not disappoint. There was so many great comments to this question this week. Yeah, lots of diverse perspectives, which is what I like to see. I always like to, because, you know, I come in with my own kind of answer. Yeah. And it's always nice to see people pushing in different directions, directions that I wouldn't have anticipated in some cases. So so first from, from Megafire, and again, I'm sorry, I'm going to be drastically curtailing your wonderful answers into like one sentence. But Megafire essentially says the first priority is to get them to stop. Um, setting aside, you know, redemption, the first priority is to stop them. Only then can you really talk about redemption and, and saving them. Uh, but Megafire also says regarding Rain specifically, I think he wants to be rescued, and I think that's all he needs to deserve it. Uh, and this was this is first of all, I, I love this sentiment, and and I it, we actually saw similar sentiments echoed in many different comments, uh, and I thought that was neat. Yeah, I I really like this answer too. Um, I really liked that that idea of the, if you want to be rescued, 
that is enough to deserve it. And the thing that I really liked about this question is it, it spawned a discussion in the thread about what is motivating Rain's personality change. And this is something we saw echoed throughout a lot of our questions, this idea of, is it this shard-driven personality bleed that has literally and forcefully changed who Rain is? Or is this just new perspective leading to him gaining a new understanding and learning that the things he were wrong? And I think people had some very varying opinions about based on which of those ends up being true, how much rain does or does not deserve forgiveness or redemption. And I think that's very interesting because there is, there is a a sentiment to the fact that if you have forcibly changed to a different person, if, if you have never actually made amends for the things that you did, because this was taken out of your hands, this was not you, that change was not your choice. It was a choice made upon you. So therefore, are you really penitent, um, for the things that you did wrong. And some people said, no, absolutely not. That, that outside of your control, that removes your agency to make that choice. And therefore the worth of your redemption. But some people said it doesn't matter. Some people said that as long as the end result is you trying to become a different person and a better person and not that old thing, then you are worthy of it. And I think that's an interesting classification. And I think this gets us really into, into a lot of gray areas with this. Yeah. I mean, one thing, and and we're going to see this, I think with most of these responses is that it, it just highlighted to me that I think people have wildly different uh, concepts in mind when you see the word redemption. Um, I'm, I'm going to save my answer for the end, but I certainly have a very different concept of what redemption even means than many of the people here and i think many of the people here have very different concepts from each other which is why we have sort of these clashing you know diametrically opposed even uh, interpretations of, of whether rain is deserving of redemption yeah so from Wallace, we have a comment that highlights how people at the top of the hierarchy in the fallen are given privileges and the people below are kept tired and worn down and thus the structure perpetuates itself basically just focusing on the kind of the way that the fallen are a wonderful example of a cult mentality. Yeah. And And that kind of supports that kind of supports whether or not they're deserving redemption or right, because we, we spoke about the fallen in a generality and a large system structure, but obviously there are individuals within the structure that are less and more culpable for the actions of it. And so how, how I think how you parse that out in, in looking as a society and saying, what is the worth of these people? How you decide which of you are more culpable versus which of you are less is an interesting discussion to have. Yeah, I, I, I like that the, the comic kind of goes on to focus specifically on um, characters like Rain and, and Allie and Aaron who are, are relatively powerless in this system. And the comment kind of concludes, all in all, they can be saved, but it's not easy. It's trading comfort, a sense of belonging, or power for a painful unknown. And I honestly can't blame the alleys and reins of the world for not being willing to make that leap. Yeah, uh, I, I like that because that's a sentiment that I can very much agree with, that, that it's really hard to blame the people who are trapped in this horrible situation. But on the flip side of that, it's, it's, it is in some sense exactly those people who perpetuate the machine Right. Uh, so, and I'm not, I'm not coming down on one side of that argument. I'm just pointing out the horrible, you know, trap that it is. Yeah. And I think we saw Sveta kind of, um, 
fulfill that one particular viewpoint of that argument by saying, well, you can just leave. You can leave. And and as we said last week, she doesn't fully understand um, how ingrained this thing is and how trapped they are in, mm-hmm. within this society and this system. So it is very easy for an outsider to look at a cult and to look at someone um, I think Scientology is a great example of, of you look at these people and you say, well, why don't you just leave? Just get out of there. And it's it's not that simple. It is not. And yeah, I mean, they are in the end responsible for perpetuating that system. But breaking that system is very hard. Right. I mean, at, uh, we're basically pack animals. It's very much yeah. against our nature to do that. It takes a heroic effort. And especially and, especially yeah. people like Valefor, who have been clearly raised I mean, Veilfor is, is, I think it's not um, controversial to call him a very bad, bad, bad person. But it, he was also a person that was raised in this from, from birth with a mother whose power is literally to like see you whenever you think of her and therefore dominates your development to a degree in which a parent never has true access to, right? Like, yeah. And we got a, a comment on the, on, on last week's podcast about why would you feel bad for Vilfor? That's something you said, well, Bo, you made me feel bad for Vilfor. And someone said, why would you do that? And it's like, well, I mean, because, because he's stuck. Like, like he, he's a person that probably never had a chance to not be a terrible human being. Yeah. And this is something I wanted to say is that Vilfor is certainly a victim. And furthermore, every parahuman is a victim of an alien invasion. Even. Yeah. Even Jack Slash and Crawler and Grey Boy are they 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 probably would have been like normal decent people in all likelihood if an alien hadn't come in and and fucked with their head in a way that like guaranteed that the worst aspects of them were completely empowered and allowed to dominate them. So so yeah, they're monsters, but they're also victims at the same time. It's not a it's not even a paradox. It's just it's right. just both things are true. And and saying that they're a victim, I think, does not lessen the horrible things that they do. I think you can say you are a victim, but you are still committing terrible, incomprehensible acts. And yeah. while I feel bad for you, I do also think you should be stopped with yeah. to the full extent of everyone's power to stop doing these terrible things. But you can still I mean, it's fiction like this is not a real human being. Right. So we can we can at least empathize with them. Yeah, um, right. without worrying that we're propagating the existence of horrible murders. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think you know it, it may be necessary to to kill to protect others. That's that's just something that we accept in our society, in our real right. world society. Yeah. Uh, but but that that doesn't mean that you don't have any empathy for the circumstances that led to someone becoming the way they are. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, moving on. Googleplex bite says um, those who have been stuck in the fallen haven't been able to take the second chance that everyone else on Earth Gimel is supposedly entitled to. And I think that's very interesting that, uh, you know, it, it's it's true. Like like Victoria herself doesn't really extend that second chance to anyone who's part of the fallen. And, and I think she's going to see the problem with that worldview. Yeah, I, I like that a lot because I think that ties into what you and I were trying to talk about with the fallen back when Victoria kind of lost her mind about them. And the more we've learned about them, the more true that is that these people have never gotten that opportunity, never gotten that chance to prove that they 
deserve that second chance because they are trapped within the system. They have not been able to operate independently of that system. So they haven't blown their second chance yet. So we should probably give it to them. Yeah. No, I mean, there's clearly ones in there that don't deserve it. I mean, that's pretty obvious. But <laughs> Yeah, it'd be a harder sell for some of them, certainly. Yeah. So Inexia would place a pretty high burden on Rain's requirements for redemption. So so basically, yeah, Rain can be redeemed, but uh, they would want to see Rain O'Fire Frazier go through quite a lot of trials and tribulations to actually get to the point where he can be considered redeemed. Yeah. Yeah, which I think I that this is why I like this question because everyone's like you said everyone's interpretation of this what this word means is different. So some people like Megafire say rain is worthy of redemption just by desiring it and some people like Anexia say I need you to go through Hercules trials before you have proven to me that that you deserve that and you should get it. Um yeah. Which is interesting and I think that's fair. Um I'm yeah. not sure which side of that I land on, but yeah, I'm, yeah, right. I'm not really here to say that any of these positions is right or wrong. I, I think this is a fascinating exploration of this idea of redemption. So Kifru says that Aaron needs to come to grips with the sacrifices required to make a break, and Rain has more or less accepted that you would have to make those sacrifices to leave the fallen. Um, but the fallen have much more of an interest in keeping him. And so it's not so easy for him. So basically he's pointing out that even the characters who we like, who in some sense want to leave are not going to be able to, or are going to have a very difficult time doing so. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I think, yeah, Kiefer seems to be putting more, personal onus and responsibility on the people that are trapped within that cycle. Like I think he says, Aaron is going to have to grow up a bit more and realize she might need to seize responsibility of her safety and she can't be beholden to her family. So at some point, if she is going to head down this path of redemption, she cannot use well, my family's here as an excuse to not change and to not try to escape that system. Yeah. And, and Kiefer also kind of comments that they themselves are concerned that, that they're, they sound like they're victim blaming. And I think that's interesting because it, it kind of sounds like what we were just talking about where it's very tempting to just say to someone in, in Scientology, like, Hey, just, just leave. And it's, yeah. it, the truth is that that is really not reasonable yet. It is also the correct, you know, <laughs> right. it, it's, it's correct, but not reasonable, right? Like it's, right. it's a weird, it's a weird place to be in. Yes, you should leave. How you do that is, something else entirely yeah, right i understand that you're not going to and that i wouldn't in your position but, but my advice do. is still sound yeah <laughs> right yeah from Urshtor, um i think the revelation of amma mathers and elijah makes things a lot more gray how many of the fallen have hem chosen this lifestyle and decided <laughs> to buy into these ideals i think this is a, a great point um that that we actually didn't see brought up that often is that uh, redemption becomes a lot weirder to talk about when you have literal mind control right um, yeah so so do you do you deserve redemption more if you're a horrible person but it's only because you're being constantly spied on and or because you're operating under a compulsion i i, I think so but and I, I think this does something very cool because this does what i think war worm and ward and 
what genre fiction itself does so well is it takes these things that exist in our world, cults exist in our world, brainwashing exists in our world, and we kind of make that much more literal with the idea of quite literal magic-based brainwashing. And that does complicate the issue because we're not talking about just someone perpetually trapped in a system. We're talked about talking about someone who literally has lost agency. They do not have their own agency anymore. They are being literally brainwashed and controlled by someone. So, yeah, that uh, that does throw a wrinkle into the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. The Venom Rex points out pragmatically that Gimmel doesn't really have the spare resources for a mass deprogramming institution uh, unless you use the person who reprograms minds with a touch. <clears throat> um, oh no. Yeah. Um, but, but no, I mean, this is, this is true. I mean, just, just like m- most people took the question philosophically, which is fine, but, but pragmatically speaking, this is true that it's like, yeah, okay. So imagine you, you sw- sweep in with overwhelming firepower and you, you, rescue all of the fallen members and have them, you know, in holding cells or whatever. Okay. Now what? Right, right. And and in a world of limited resources where a war is on the horizon, do we have time to worry about cult members that have been murdering people because they're black or gay or like these terrible people that brainwashed or no um, have been committing horrible crimes? Or do we have to focus our resources on on others and yeah. people that aren't doing those terrible things? And I, th- I like that pragmatic look at it. Um, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, setting aside... Like, if you're going to be able to deprogram them, how are you even going to house them? We we just had, like, a riot or or at least, a, you know, a standoff over yeah. people not getting the housing they were promised, so. If only we had some sort of cage with birds in it. <laughs> yes, for all of the fallen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Stelhex basically asks, yes, but is it really worth the trouble to rescue the really dangerous ones? Which so is, that, I think, a, a, ref, a further reflection of the previous comment, right? Yeah, I think so. Like, like, yeah, I mean, even assuming you could deprogram, you know, the Rain's uncle characters, um, like, do you even want to waste the resources and manpower to go after Mama Mathers or Valefor when... Like, you're probably going to lose some capes and you might just want to nuke the site from orbit. Yeah. <laughs> it's an aliens reference. That's how I would deal there. with it. Yeah, right. It's the only way to be sure. It's the only way to be sure, exactly. Uh, you read that about as good as I think it's possible. <laughs> Actually, I, I get it. It's EXE, it's EXE JPEG. JPEG wave. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or Windows Media Windows Viewer? Media viewer Video? File video something like yeah it's uh that's what you get for your unpronounceable <laughs> usernames says says more Dinamail. says more dinamail <laughs> uh, and their comment is basically first priority stop second priority containment third priority rehabilitate um and they they mentioned this is how they view the the process for currently violent cult members slash criminals even in the modern world and i think that's a pretty reasonable uh, framework absolutely i think that's basically the 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 basic tenet of our justice system right is like mm-hmm. first remove you from the ability of to hurt other people and then we'll worry about that other stuff after yeah makes sense uh airlocks says yes um this redemption thing may be possible but they take things in a very interesting direction saying um 
maybe the dream tinker will be able to broadcast whatever terrible thing Rain did to people, or we'll see it after Rain has killed his cluster and gotten more powerful while also reversing the personality bleed. So basically, they're envisioning a Rain anti-redemption arc where Rain <laughs> becomes more powerful and evil. I gotta say, I hadn't considered that. I kind of like it. It is. Yeah, they admit that it is It is reversing the kind of arc that Wildbow normally does in his stories. And I'm not sure if we're going to go there, but I sure would enjoy it if uh, if we got to see that. It made me One smile. way or another. Yeah, I like this. This evil enough. Faybrained, again, takes a pragmatic approach and uh, basically says, we don't even know if you can root out the influence of Mama or Veilfor, even if they're dead. Uh, so it's difficult to say, like, how would you prag- like pragmatically deprogram the people who have been affected by these mind control capes? And honestly, there's probably even more of the fallen who have mind control powers that we don't even know about because that is kind of their cluster uh that not cluster but most of them i think are buds off of mama shard so yeah yeah that's um, true and then uh Velst, uh has <laughs> what i believe is the edgiest take uh that they say i don't really believe in redemption like victoria said in the prologue i don't believe in forgive and forget um which is you know, as a position, this is pretty far out along that particular direction of the takes on redemption. Um, and then they further say, but, and I realize this seems harsh, if it's true that Rain's death would allow the members of his cluster trigger to go back to their old non-evil selves, then the most moral thing to, for him to do might actually be to kill himself, as Cradle suggested. Um, so this is a very interesting form of pragmatism. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I, I just, I enjoyed this comment just for being like, yep, this is this is very much not in line with my interpretation of what redemption means or who deserves it, but um, kudos for stating your case clearly and and uh, forcefully. Right. I mean, this is the coolest thing about these questions to me is um, I would have never answered the question this way ever. Um, <laughs> but I mean, there's no wrong answer here. I don't think that's the whole point of a discussion question is it just brings different differing people's opinions together. Um, I like that the Velt's specifies that they do not support the death penalty that they're not saying that if you do bad things you must be eliminated but that like redemption implies of a forgive and forget thing which i i don't personally agree with but if you subscribe to that idea that that saying someone is redeemed means forgiving what they've done and forgetting about it then you absolutely should not get to live a normal life and should not get to or in this in their their interpretation go free and exist outside of some kind of controlled contained situation yep i agree so calierno or calierno yeah says uh first of all they make a comparison to the character of angel and uh <gasps> scott i think you wanted to yeah even, um yeah. so bonus 1542 points for linking this back to uh angel from from buffy and angel the two shows which are some of my um well i i i haven't i haven't seen all of angel but buffy is one of my favorite shows so linking this back to the character of angel i think is just amazing and and i think Kalerno's right to a certain extent that that they are similar characters that that angel in the show is someone who um, was a bad person, was a vampire without a soul, and then was gifted with the soul, um, cursed rather, 
and therefore suddenly felt bad about the things that they were doing that they would not blink at beforehand. And that is very similar to Rain, who was who was cursed with this power or this cluster that made them see things in a new light. And um, I, I, I like that idea a lot. So, yeah, good job, Claire. No, thanks for linking to my favorite my favorite property ever. I like this phrasing of redemption isn't a single event, but a struggle that defines you forever. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's that's cool. I like that it, too because it's like it's not like it, it, it like there's a there's a tendency to kind of make redemption like a mathematical equation, right? Like you do x bad things, how many y good things do you need to do before you've balanced the scale? And and Clarno's view on it is once you have done even one moment of a bad thing, you are going to be fighting against that for the rest of your life. And to truly be a redeemed person, um, this is kind of like a burden that's that that is placed on you either by other people or by yourself to earn the right to exist after having done that terrible thing. Yeah, and that kind of gives me an excuse to segue into my own thoughts, which is that like, and maybe this is an idiosyncratic interpretation of what redemption means, but I kind of agree that redemption is more something internal. Like, like you don't, we, we don't put people in prison so that they can be redeemed. We, we, we put them in prison um, nominally so that justice can be done. Like the concept is justice, not, not redemption. The idea isn't that you're redeeming them. Redemption is what that person should hopefully seek for themselves so that they can move on with their lives and, come to some new new kind of self-acceptance uh and that's that's the thing is like i, I don't i don't actually demand anything of anyone when it comes to redemption i i at most i, I hope that they find their own redemption for their own sake uh, that's kind of how i view it yeah i mean there uh, is like the idea of prison is also rehabilitation to a certain extent um yeah but i don't know how related the concepts of rehabilitation and redemption really are um, that's fair yeah. And and I would go even further and say like most of these commenters either believe redemption is possible or in some cases don't believe it's possible, but my view I think is closer to being like the idea of redemption is sort of almost incoherent because I don't really believe in free will or like libertarian personal responsibility in the sense of like you having a, a soul which is fundamentally uh like like responsible for your actions in some cosmic sense so again redemption is at most something that an individual may feel the need to do for their own sake but can't be required of you by someone else and and furthermore to reiterate what i said before anybody who does a bad thing is a victim of circumstance and basically the bad luck of being born in the wrong place at the wrong time or to the wrong parents or growing grown, grow, growing up being fed the wrong stories about how to think and how to live um, so, you know, if, if you're just the victim of bad luck, then of course you deserve to be rescued. And I mean, the, the, the contrary would be that you deserve to be punished for having bad luck, which I think no one would really stand by. So that's my take on all that. Well, we have a book to talk about, but I would love to jump into that with you for like an hour. Cause I think this is something that we approach from a very, very different perspective, <laughs> which I think is, is based off of, um, both of our our belief sets i think that makes a lot of sense but 
Um, yeah, yeah, I was I was kind of surprised. Not I mean, not surprised to see you write that, but I was like, huh, interesting, interesting. <laughs> I don't agree with that. Um, but that's a, I think that's a conversation for another time. Yeah, well, and I think that's good. I mean, that's one thing that's going to be good. I think about this Ward podcast is I I held back from um, talking about my own like feelings about things too much in the in the worm podcast because it was sort of like i was pitching and you were hitting if that makes sense yeah. um just due to the structure of it and this time we're both on an even playing field so i'm a bit more comfortable going out on a limb with my own uh weird ass interpretations of things so no i think that's great i i like that a lot and i think this was a really great discussion with many different points of view that i find equally fascinating so yeah totally very happy with how that went so just to wrap up the community stuff, uh, another comment was from Lexicon Rot, who points out that the shade from Arc 4, the, the title, could also refer to a common word for ghost, which is very similar to what Mama Mathers is. And uh, that's a really good connection. Yeah, it's so good that it makes me mad that I did not think of it. Yeah, me too. In yeah. fact, when, when I read that, I was like, yep, <laughs> yep, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, damn it. All right, that wraps that up. So let's move on into the first three chapters of Arc 5. All right. 5.1. Victoria seems to wake up from a bad dream, though I don't think we're privy to the contents of the dream. No. She gets dressed in some red-dyed jeans that remind her of a hilarious story involving Dean trying on red jeans. Yeah, and really the, the basic movement of this first part of the chapter, and therefore the first part of the arc, is getting us back into the mindset mindset of a Victoria who is barely hanging on um, for the most part of arc four. I think we saw Victoria start from a place where she was very comfortable. She had a mission she had, she was comfortable in what she needed to do and how she needed to do it. And shade served as kind of a, a challenge to every, every part of that where we saw increasingly throughout the chapter, she was less sure about what she was doing. She was less sure about her purpose. She was less sure about everyone and everything around her. And, and she ended that arc lost basically. And I think we saw that, that rain's revelation, not only like directly challenged her worldview, but brought her into that Amy headspace, that, that cause and effect chain with what happened to Amy. And so here in this arc, we're getting an opening that focuses more on those memories, focuses more on the past. And we get these really dark lines like sleep, eating, having a space to retreat to, physical affection, attention, socializing, breathing. It was always the basic animal things that came apart in the wake of stress and crisis. Things broke down, got twisted, or they were reminders. And that's... uh. <laughs> That's pretty pretty heavy, Matt, to start off an arc with. Yeah, it it makes it makes me feel like Victoria is in a pretty bad place. Just just yeah. that kind of thing where she's sort of just having a claw for basic survival space. Right. And and the most interesting bit of this to me was throughout this this opening portion of the chapter, Victoria is being dominated by memories, by the past. Um she's thinking about like she's having bad dreams she's she's thinking about um like back in the hospital um and then we see her in order to process the past in order to to deal with the past she knowingly selects positive memories to quote uh buffer against the bad night's sleep she goes back and falls back to 
positive memories of Dean, the time Dean tried on these red jeans and, and stained his underwear red. Um, but all of that is still past focused, right? Right now, because of rain and, and presumably because of the conversation with Yamada that we're going to have to like cut back and forth to, um, nothing in the present or the future provides Victoria with any comfort or buffer against the nightmare she's having. Only selective memories of things that have already happened, of happier times, are providing her with that kind of comfort. And it's it's completely past-focused. And no, uh, Yeah, it's completely past-focused. And it's on it's on content that's a bit... Um, I don't know how to phrase it. Like, like risky to put all your weight on. Like, she's she is, in a sense living in the like 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 finding comfort in the memory of her dead boyfriend who died tragically yeah and like that's it's not like you're just like remembering like the weekend you had with your boyfriend (laughs) who you're gonna see tomorrow he he died she lost him it was a horrible tragedy right so it's a I, i see why she finds comfort in it but it's a it seems very sad that that's something that she has to resort to yeah it's a very it's a very unsteady scaffold to hang yourself on yeah yeah it basically says there's nothing in her actual present day life that she can like you said hang her stability on yeah absolutely yeah it's not it's not looking good for poor victoria yeah so um yeah so the pov moves back to her conversation with Jessica and this whole chapter actually has a lot of switching between a conversation that she had with Jessica and following her as she goes to the uh, Misfit Toys HQ. So we, in this conversation, we get a bit more understanding of what Jessica is worried about or, or, or do we actually, because basically Victoria (laughs) says double agent, someone under the influence of another. And Jessica says, telling you would be telling you who, which unfortunately would be betraying confidence. Can I think aloud? You can. So my my reaction here was like, uh, Jessica, I kind of think that you'd be betraying a confidence if you responded to Victoria's musings with anything other than total ambiguity. Yeah, I don't think, uh, Your Honor, she guessed correctly is an allowable <laughs> defense for a breach of client-patient confidentiality. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but to, I mean, to Jessica's credit, Matt, she actually doesn't give Victoria and frustratingly us any real concrete workable info here it's all just very vague musings of her own that we really can't grab onto if anything it just makes us more generally anxious about what's going on yeah so jessica's concerns are in this weird space between not being serious enough that she can break confidentiality but serious enough that she's worried for her career yeah which is a pretty uh shitty spot to be in And this got me thinking, Matt, and looking at the major Jessica interactions we've had, both in this chapter specifically and the book as a whole so far, there is a real effort to humanize her as a character. Um, And it's it's almost in the opposite direction that Wildbo usually goes, right? Wildbo is usually all about taking characters we think as objectively awful and then forcing us to see their human side to breed empathy for them. Here, we're specifically taking that, like, golden goose on top of the pedestal that is Jessica Yamada and bring her down to the human level. Um, I, I think it's it's great how we do this structurally, too, because we've had um, Victoria specifically say things like, 
when I talked to her in this setting, she was not Mrs. Yamada anymore. She was Jessica. And that is a, that is a deliberate attempt to, to humanize her and make her a, a person and not just the holy therapist on top of the hill. Um, and, and that's important because, because Jessica is, is great. And I think she's really good at her job, but she's not perfect. And just like everyone else in this new world, she's bumbling through it, trying to to figure stuff out, weighing her doubts, her responsibilities and her fears against each other uh, to try to make the most intelligent decision. And I think when you start thinking about this, Matt, the, the thing that I kind of came to when I realized this is that her decision to reach out to Victoria is something that we've seen in our protagonist before. Um we see in this moment that Jessica can't trust the law and what's right and wrong is unclear to her. So she reaches out to someone else. She reaches out to Victoria, someone else to gain a new perspective. And that's something that we've seen Victoria echo again and again. That's kind of like her mantra. It's like, um, go with the law, go with what's right or wrong. And if neither of those are clear, reach out to someone else. And I guess that's where Victoria learned it from, huh? Yeah, it'll be interesting if we find out whether she explicitly learned it from Yamada or whether it just kind of rubbed off on her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that that's that's exactly right. I, I thought that was really cool that you picked that out because I didn't notice that. Um, and, and yeah, speaking of Jessica's fallibility, it, there is a sense in which one of the main inciting incidents of the story was caused by a mistake she made, which was yeah. you know getting these kids together in the first place. These, uh, you know, the 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 glowworm chapters are the, you know, the prologue that they're they're telling us what this story is going to be about, and that was all incited by Jessica. Yeah, absolutely. So Yamada now asks how Victoria is doing, and Victoria basically can't answer her because she hasn't been focused enough on herself to really render a picture that Jessica would find satisfactory. Uh, Victoria admits that she hasn't called the therapist number that Yamada gave her, which is something we were wondering about last week. Yeah, bad Victoria. Yeah. Uh, the thing I like most about Victoria's side of this whole interaction is that she tells Yamada that her paranoid spiked because she's relating this situation with Rain back to her memories of Amy. She's very honest with Jessica here, which I think is really great. But Jessica basically throughout this entire conversation is like trying to walk her back in the the, the most like she doesn't want to be full on therapist mode, but she's saying like, hey, hey, you know, memories of your sister, memories of things before um, are probably a little skewed and you probably shouldn't take them as gospel you probably shouldn't take them at face value and victoria like acknowledges this admits this but kind of just keeps doubling down on it yeah no it, it's it, you're right because she she appears to be accepting it but then she's like that's not really going to stop me from uh from basing all of my decisions off of uh what uh yeah what what happened in the past which again is highly distorted yeah. And even when she says like, no, see, like I've played these moments again and again in my head, these isolated moments. I know that they're not being influenced from my feelings because I've played them over and over again. And then Jessica's like, well, I mean, replaying events over and over in your head in excruciating detail will distort that memory. Right. Our memory is not infallible. Yeah, that that is indeed how editing memories works. Yes, <laughs> that's uh, that's funny. I mean, also terribly tragic, but yeah, but yes. yeah. And like I said, I mean, like we see Jessica again being distinct from Mrs. Yamada, the therapist is is offering her this advice, but it, it's she's doing it in the like the least 
forward way possible. She's just trying to be like, just remember this. You don't have to listen to me, but just just she's kind of slipping into that therapist a bit, even if she's trying not to to necessarily be that person. Yeah, no, you're right. So Victoria arrives at the MFTHQ and takes off her clothes to shower. She is paranoid yet again about keeping her clothes pristine. And we find out the reason why she's so attentive to her clothes is I hadn't gotten to be fussy with other things. A year after I had gone to the hospital, my mom had donated just about all of my clothes to charity, which uh, is is really sad. And and you feel it as a gut punch in the yeah. in in the moment. Um, and, and I definitely felt that as being sad and, and angering in the moment. But I, I've had to think about what to say about this because on the one hand, this is pretty shitty. But on the other hand, I've seen people getting pretty pretty upset about this in the forums to a degree that I I wonder if it's entirely warranted because Carol's also going through her own grieving behavior she she from her point of view she lost both of her daughters we know that she that she is incorrect about the degree to which she's lost both of her daughters but she yeah. doesn't know that so like it's always weird to be in like the apologist role, but like, I, I do think this is one of those situations where um, she's not Hitler. She's, she, she was grieving and having a really hard time. And yes, this is a, this is a very understandably painful thing for Victoria, but I don't know if we need to smash Carol over it quite so thoroughly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of of two minds about it, right? Because Obviously, this is something that really hurt Victoria, um, the, the, this this idea, and, and it reflects this idea that Victoria fully believes that her mom completely wrote her off, that once she became this thing, she was basically dead to her mother. And we kind of, that's kind of reinforced by Carol's uh, interlude back in Worm, too, because she she kind of said, I have lost my daughters. I have lost them both. They're both gone now. And... I, like it's it's a shitty thing to do but you're absolutely right that like even if even if she she is able to get over this this grief of her daughter being changed into this different thing and and is able to rekindle the relationship with her daughter Matt her daughter's not going to be wearing clothes anymore like she's right. just she, in the form she was is she just not and and perhaps a, after a year of entering her house every day and and seeing her daughter's room the way it was and seeing these these things that hold on to a person that is no longer there that is no longer that person anymore she just couldn't take it anymore she just couldn't deal with it and i i completely agree that carol handled this entire situation about as shittily as a person could do and she probably should have asked her daughter before she did this thing. But I think you're absolutely right that that to to call this a terrible, unforgivable sin, I I I just I can't do that. Yeah, I guess I keep getting in trouble with our listeners because I I'm always able to put myself in the position of the person who does the shitty thing and understand right. why they did it, which is yet again true here. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that I condone it. It just means no. that I can understand being in that headspace where that is a thing that you feel like you have to do. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't think Carol is a particularly great person, but I think, yeah, you can absolutely put yourself in her headspace. 
Yeah. Totally. And I think we have also just been very specifically reminded by our amazing therapist that your memories of things are distorted, that that Victoria's memories of how things played out cannot be 100% relied on as fact. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be interesting if that was one of the things that wasn't entirely true the way she saw it. Yeah. Well, and also like, I think you look at the detail of like, my mom donated just about all of my clothes. So she did save some stuff. And for Victoria, it's not the stuff that was important to her because she says she gave away the, the clothes that really meant something to her. But she saved, I mean, she didn't say all the clothes. She said just about all the clothes. So what did she keep? Maybe this was stuff that was important to Carol, just not Victoria. Well, we don't, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. I do wonder if we're going to hear more about that. That's, that's, that's interesting. So now that Victoria is undressed, she takes an excessively long shower hovering under the hot water, a kind of meditative attempt to burn away the bad feelings. Yeah, but I think this is really cool. And I think this gets at at least the theme of these first three chapters, Matt, is Victoria looks at her situation and she considers going with the scalding hot water to burn away her feelings or the freezing cold water to wake herself up. And she chooses this middle ground. She chooses warm water and she calls it a replacement for the warm hug of the sweater that she's taken off and the thing about victoria is even even as she's not dealing with certain things very well even as she's has this this point of view and these this look on her past that is almost unwavering um and, and she she slips sometimes and she struggles i think it's always clear at least to me that she's constantly trying that each and every moment of her her life is a struggle and she's kind of feeling her way through it and whenever she's able to victoria tries to temper her reactions to things she she backs away and gets some perspective she doesn't chase the extreme she doesn't go with the scalding hot she doesn't go with the freezing cold she tries to find a middle ground and i think that's pretty commendable yeah no the, i like that the the warm water as a as a metaphor for her trying to be temperate uh yeah and, and i think we'll see that play out throughout these these at least these next two chapters yeah i agree so back with jessica uh jessica's saying it's not that i don't like it i think it can make sense to take a hero name as an adult but for someone younger it can be one part of a greater issue it's hard enough for a teenager to decide who they are without the icon the mask and the name taking so much focus so i, I pull that out because it's kind of Yet another beat in this ongoing thematic conversation. And we've seen that we saw this in, in Yamada going all the way back to Worm, where she she has strong feelings about, about the code names, the, the cape names, and, and they're talking about um, the misfit toys taking new names. Yeah, and I'm wondering what your personal opinion on this, speaking of you sharing what you think about things, because it's clear from the text that Victoria, uh, like, vehemently disagrees with Yamada's perspective on this like she even says I would love to get into an hour debate with her about this we just didn't have the time um and and Victoria might as a person who went through being a teenage cape have a better perspective than even the therapist on the importance of names but it's hard not to compare this general worry of Jessica's back to the focus of the misfit toys so far in all of last arc which was literally icons masks and names that's the thing besides prepping everything in hollow point that's that's the main focus of what the team has been so far yeah i mean i, I think it, it a lot of it you know when it comes to what they're trying to do they're trying to 
to determine what face they want to put forward as capes, which is not the same thing as figuring out who you are, right? Right. Um, I mean, if anything, like Ashley's probably the most interesting case in terms of talking about identity because for her, like damsel is her identity that she's put together. Like, like damsel is basically who Ashley is trying to be. It's not just her cape alias. Um, and, and I think it's very interesting furthermore that she's toying with that by playing with having, you know, a different costume, different cape name. Um, yeah. 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 I'm not sure if, that was terribly coherent, but but I I, no, I yeah. do agree that like it's hard enough exactly like Jessica says when you're a teenager, you're you're trying to put together one who you are on the inside and two how you want to present yourself, and that's just gonna be made way harder if you're also trying to deal with oh yeah also I have a whole different persona in costume. Yeah, I mean, th- there's part of me that really wants to see the argument against Jessica's that Vic, Vic, uh, that Victoria would would construct. I'm very interested in what she would say. I, I I agree because I have a much easier time seeing Amada's perspective on this. Yeah, yeah. So now Victoria refers to the situation that's happening as a snowball rolling downhill. She says she's trying to change its course. And this language actually reminds me of what Madison said to Victoria in the chat back in the Glowworm prelude, mm-hmm. comparing her bullying of Taylor with pushing a rock downhill and then the rock going out of sight and then her later seeing the devastation that she caused. And I have to wonder if Victoria isn't consciously or unconsciously absorbing this, this language and using it to to compare with what she's doing here. Yeah. I, I like that comparison a lot, Matt. And I, and intentionally or not, I, I see that connection and it, it, I enjoy it. Um, and it, it kind of fits that Victoria sees things as these long cause and effect chains. Like she saw it, like her history with Amy was this one long thing that in her, her mind started um, at least as early as the bank robbery and then played out in different ways. She sees the same thing with rain and with this looming war. And then, and then you're right, even looking back on what happened with Taylor. And I like this idea that she's smart enough to know that she doesn't have the capability to actually stop this boulder or, or the snowball once it's been kicked or rolled but she does have the power to give it those few nudges, as she says, nudges. And and a small nudge on a boulder before it picks up too much speed early on its fall could could completely change where it ends up in the end. And I think that's some really, really great imagery. I like it a lot. Yeah, of course, I'm also tempted to see it as a chaotic process where you think you're pushing it left, but then by pushing it left, you nudge it into an obstacle that then pushes it back right and then it does nothing yeah absolutely and even if you nudge a a boulder in a different direction it's still a a boulder rolling down a hill (laughs) it's still going to destroy things you're just trying to aim its destructive path yeah yeah so I, i think the cool thing about this whole thing is we see from this situation that victoria gets a little confirmation from jessica she's she's in this situation where she's kind of lost she's not sure about her focus she's not sure what she's doing and where she's doing it but her her conversation with Jessica at least makes her feel like she's on the right chat track a bit. And it serves to center her again. And we see that after she's calmed down, the first thing she does is realize that she's hungry. And I like that because it echoes back to the start of the chapter, this idea that there are these basic animal things that 
come they come apart when we're in the middle of stress and crisis. And now in this moment where she starts to center herself, the second thing on her list after sleep was eating. And now she's, hey, I'm hungry and I'm going to eat again. And I think this is a sign that Victoria's conversation with Jessica d- did help her. And 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 she is making strides, um, which I think we're going to be terribly torn up again as as action ramps up later in the arc. But, you know, yeah. you have small victories, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, I like that pull. So now she back, you know, in the timeline where she is in the headquarters she checks her laptop and notes that the other teams have been in communication with her the other uh, hero teams she thinks about the balancing act required to maintain something like dibs on cedar point without being overly aggressive about it yeah and this uh, as it turns out is just a lot of setup for for the the exact problem that's going to rear its head next chapter that she's getting lots of communications a lot of people are talking about hollow point now and controlling that talk and controlling that interest is something that's probably out of their hands and we will see just how much it is in a little bit yeah it makes me wonder if it was out of their hands all along and they were overly ambitious in terms of what they thought they could accomplish or if there's some sort of enemy action that's actually you know it's actually more like sabotage than like hubris Yeah, and that's one of those things we just don't really have an answer to yet. Right. So she flies into Cedar Point by herself and she sets down on a roof. A truck driver sees her and strikes up a conversation with her. Interestingly, Victoria positions herself as being very much on this guy's side. There's no consideration at all that all that he might be a henchman. She's very open with him. I, I thought this was very interesting. Yeah, and I think as much as you and I tend to... Um, maybe get on Victoria's case for being unable to look past the deeds of people who have done bad in the past. She also has this tendency to really optimistically assume the best in people that she doesn't know yet. Like if she knows you as a bad person, you are a bad person and it's very hard for her to get past that. But if she doesn't know you, she kind of assumes the best in people, which is I think charming, but, but yeah, she doesn't know this guy at all. Yeah, and she's basically telling him her rationale for like, oh, yeah, I'm showing up early because then it, it sends a different psychological message. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, OK, so if he's if, if he's not trustworthy, then he's going to report that to someone. And but I, I mean, like you said, it's it's kind of an open hearted, open way of being. And it's it's admirable in its way. Yeah. Yeah. So this guy isn't happy that war is coming to Cedar Point, uh, which is what Victoria says. Uh, but he understands that the hero's intervention is necessary. And Victoria thinks it meant a lot to me to hear that. I held myself to the idea that if I couldn't trust the law, I could trust what was right. If I couldn't trust either, I could reach out. Yeah, and that's that mantra we were talking about a little earlier, that thing that Victoria has repeated a few times now, and we see her fall back on it here. And this is interesting because, like we just said, she doesn't know this man. At all. She doesn't know who he is, doesn't know any of his motivation, anything. She doesn't she doesn't really know what his belief system is. And she's putting a lot of weight on this one random guy's opinion that she just happened on. I mean, if if we say, if we do admit and if we get confirmed that Jessica's mantra, this idea of law, then right or wrong, then reach out, is something she learned from Jessica Yamada, well, how did Jessica put this into practice? Well, she didn't know what to do, and she reached out to Victoria, a person that she knew very well, 
that she felt like she could trust and that she knows has an experience that would lend herself to sniffing out the problems in the group that she's worried about. Victoria's interpretation of that thing here is, hey, Jerry, the the fruit guy, what do you think about all this? Oh, you agree with me? Sweet. I'm vindicated now. I'm fine. And that's interesting. That's uh, <laughs> that's that's I, it, it worries me a little that that she's placing this much value in something that just so happens to confirm the way it, it just so happened to line up with exactly what she wanted to feel in this moment. Yeah, right. She's she's seeking validation. She gets validation from literally the first person she runs into and then and then she feels better. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how worried I am about it, but you're, you're right that there's it just highlights sort of how weak her ego is not that having a big ego is good, but having some ego is good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe worried was the the wrong phrase, but yeah, um, it is just an, uh, an observation I wanted to make. Yeah, no, it's, it is really interesting. So she, then she heads back to the HQ later on and most of the team arrives pretty much at the same time. They've got a couple of other hero teams lined up to make the trolls through the point. Chris wants to go in too and says he's primed and kind of needs to get his mad anxiety on. Yeah, and I, I swear to God, Matt, I, I really thought mad anxiety anxiety was just Chris speaking in slang and being like, man, I got mad anxiety right now. But no, he just means two two separate emotions connected together to combine into a, well, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually made the same assumption, but now it's becoming... Not clear because we don't really understand it still, but it seems like, you know, one indulgence and mad anxiety are like one word is modifying the other in both cases. Right. So, yeah, one of the capes who wants to come through the town is actually paying for the privilege to do so. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tristan says they're paying. If we give him clear directions on how to ruin a villain's day, he'll pay us 200 bucks. It's a good precedent. Um, and I just thought, I just thought this was bizarre because I was like, so is this person trying to build up rep or do they just really, really want to punch someone? <laughs> it's probably a, a little of both, maybe. Um, I, the thing I found so surprising is just how much their operation has expanded since we last saw it, because we saw them set up this meeting with Houndstooth that that Houndstooth and his guys were going to make a pass through. We saw them contact Azure to do their whole phone thing. And then suddenly they've got multiple teams walking through. They've got, they're getting emails from all different kinds of people. They've got mercenaries offering their services. Like it seems like the, the scope of this mess with them, uh, mission has, has expanded rapidly. And, and I think, I think that the, the, the thing with this is that it could quickly get out of their hands. I get out of the hands of a, of a group that does not have a lot of experience doing this kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think that's certainly turns out to be true, right? Um, I, I I love this next bit though. Uh, great, Tristan said. It's not the screaming one, is it? Mad is the screaming one, Tri- Chris said. I wanted to make an impact, and if we need me as a distraction, then screaming is good. Tristan said something in Spanish under his breath and went to his whiteboard. Swear words, if I had to guess. I just thought this was hilarious. Uh, yeah, you know, because it's it's it just makes you 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 don't know what Chris's form is going to be like, but you just know that it's going to be something really 
unnerving and upsetting just by the way Tristan reacts. I think it I think it makes Chris's form the reveal of Chris's form land a little bit harder because you have the established this is the screaming one, um, which I think makes that moment pay off uh, a little bit more than it would have normally. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Also, it was a reminder that Tristan is Spanish, which is something we knew um or, or hispanic I'm not hispanic sure. yeah. sorry and yeah, not yeah. specifically spanish but i think it's something we uh we we knew but uh, i had forgotten because it has not been talked about very often which i think is good because i think that's that's part of him and i had lost that image of him in my head and i'm glad to have it back yeah i think i had seen enough fan art that that was stuck in my head as as, that's fair. as being but uh yeah that that's it's good that we were reminded um, so there's some further great team banter that I won't really dig into other than to mention how we've now got all these characters nice and established and you can have a, a dense dialogue scene like this and it just works gangbusters. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I think I'd like everyone listening to go back and read this conversation between them just to, to get an idea of of how well this dialogue works because it, it 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 moves it has energy you have like five different people all talking at the same time and kind of talking over each other and some are ignoring them and like they're having layering conversations and it all works it never gets bogged down it never gets confusing it's so effective and you're, it, it is what you get when you spend time on character development it is what you get when you spend time getting to know your characters you can do something like this and i it's it's good it's good yeah no and and yeah i mean basically if we were if we had gone into that then we would have to talk about every line because every line is a you know the perfect thing that that character would say you know yeah yeah um yeah so so ashley has decided that she wants to be swan song uh as her as her new name to go with her hero white theme that she's switching to <laughs> um which it's funny because i i had like a sense of what swan song means and and knew that it was like a, a a death song basically but the actual definition is a person's final public performance or professional activity before retirement so it's like one last mission before retirement which is the most ominous thing ever yeah which is yeah, even better it's hilarious it, yeah. it it serves her perfectly i've yeah i it's great it, yeah it means nothing nothing bad's gonna happen to you ashley no not it's not foreboding but, but i mean it even works for her idea that this is her one this is her one one performance as a hero and then she's gonna go back to being the villain so yeah this is her hero swan song i agree i, I think that's a good connection too so now Rain and Aaron arrive. Rain checks in with everyone and gets a bit of positive acknowledgement from the friends that he's worried that might be upset with him for his, you know, fallen revelation. So it was Rain's night last night to have the terrible dream, and he's not doing too good. Of course, we didn't get to see that dream, but it seems like it took a lot out of him over and above what his prior evening was like. Victoria gives him that solidarity handshake that she got from the uh, the Foresight Cape, I believe. Yeah, I'm really glad you pulled that out because I immediately made that connection too. And I like that we spent the time to talk about the importance of that handshake back in that chapter because that does mean more than just a cordial professional uh, acknowledgement. This is something uh, more personal and it's more about camaraderie and and, and being a, a team member. And Victoria is communicating something to him wordlessly and he notices it. Yeah, and uh, 
unfortunately, someone else may have noticed it too. Um, because Rain, he flinched at the unexpected gesture, looked to one side and stared off into space momentarily. There was a part of me that recognized that too. Bad dreams. Um, of course, not just bad dreams, also bad visions. And very interesting that Victoria has communicated this gesture of solidarity in a way that was probably observed and communicated something to uh, Mama Mathers. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing about Rain now is we have to think about that as he's in every moment now. Like yep. if he if we see him visibly react to something, we have to wonder if Mama Mathers just popped up and got a nice little view of inside their headquarters. I mean, yep. that's just that's just the reality we're living in now. And I think the text goes out of its way in moments like this to to draw that connection for you. Yeah. No, it's 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 horrifying. It's wonderful. Yeah. 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 I, I do like how this ends, though, because uh, there's this one part at the end that says um, his voice was faintly rough edged, like he'd screamed himself hoarse, as if a small part of snag had found root in Rain's throat. And I mean, it, it's tough to read into that too much. I mean, we know um, may, maybe on his night in the the Pentagon he is like we know you the person speaks more when it's their night maybe he i, well, I mean i don't even know like will you yelling inside this room translate to tired lungs outside the room we don't even know yeah right no i i i want i do wonder i wonder if we're going to find out more about that yeah. I, think, I, I suspect we will one way or another yeah i think you're right so then we move into 5.2 so that first chapter it set things up We've got Victoria in a headspace where she's trying to claw for some kind of reasonable level of self-care, but it's hard to say that she's succeeding in doing so. We've got Rain worn ragged from the events of his interlude's last arc. Chris is looking to uncork some mad anxiety. And with everybody else, there's something weird going on. And the team that Yamada won't explain what's going on with them is, is driving Victoria's and our paranoia through the roof. Yeah, I would like everyone out there to know that in our script, Matt capitalized something weird going on. And it's all capitalized. So just, just to know how much emphasis we're placing on that, which yeah. I mean, that that could be the theme of these next two chapters is something weird is going on. Yeah, no, that, and, and it's something. Yeah, that that is like the main thing to pay attention to, I think, in mm -hmm. these chapters is this like not just like, oh, there's a cape fight, but like okay, but what's going on under the surface? Right, right. And it's going to be really cool to figure out what this is. So this chapter starts with Kinsey saying, maybe trouble. Um, it turns out to be Nailbiter and one of her henchwomen having something of a domestic dispute with the henchwoman's parents. The young woman, Colt, has been working for Nailbiter and her parents are trying to reassert control. The degree to which this domestic dispute is a microcosm for every theme in this story can probably be discussed forever. For yeah. example, we have a teenager who is angry at her parents for perceived mistakes and turns to crime for some independence. Uh, we have parents who are doing their best, but their best turns out to not be good enough in the face of Arm Armageddon. We've got both parties who are angry at each other having not great interpersonal skills and thus they end up pushing each other away despite really wanting the opposite. And then kind of to frame all of this, the misfit toys themselves debate what to do about this situation, each member expressing something about themselves 
in what they want to do about it. Yeah, uh, that pretty much sums it up, Matt. I, I honestly don't know what else to add. Um, I, I guess I'll just say that like out of this entire interaction, the, the part of it that landed hardest for me was the one related to your third point, which was when at just as, as a decision is going to be made, we have Colt saying, Mom. And then her mom replies with, what are you asking me for? If you're going to go, then go. And then, yeah, fuck you. And you're right that it's just this moment where this was the last opportunity for these two sides to actually communicate what they want and to actually make a connection and reestablish their familial connection. And they just they just failed at it fundamentally. I mean, like they're both kind of reaching out and they both kind of reject each other. And it's yeah. just like, oh, guys. Yeah, I, I agree that it's really sad because you you can tell and, and, and the writing is masterfully done here because it's very hard to say why this is but you can tell that neither side wants this to happen mm-hmm. but they, they they both push each other into it because they, they can't back down yeah yeah and and so the 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 response from the misfit toys i want to focus on the most here is unsurprisingly uh, my current favorite character ashley's who who decides here in this moment that because colt was so easily able to hit her mother and her mother uh per ashley was completely ready to hit her back she assumes therefore that this behavior must have been learned and it therefore must have been learned specifically from her mother and she victoria even calls her out on this and says that's kind of a, a leap to make and and you start thinking about why ashley would would have the tendency to make that leap and it kind of fits into what we know about this character though she was a clone created to do and be a certain thing and she is in the middle of trying to understand this behavior and these tendencies these have these thoughts that probably jump into her head that she doesn't understand where they're coming from because it's all this pre-programmed behavior so she is naturally kind of has the tendency to to look for the source of behavior as coming from uh your creator Right. And I, I think that's that's a great it's a great way to examine her whole point of view on this thing. Yeah, that is very interesting that her first thought would be, where did she learn this? And, and yeah, the, the idea of of her, her mom, the fact that her mom is bone saw is not something that I had consciously put together. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see next chapter also why we got an info dump on Nailbiter here. Oh, yes. Yes, we will. Um. So there's some stuff going on with Sveta in the background. Um, of course, Sveta said with an unusually sarcastic tone, you're fine with losing an eye. That's badass, she says while they're they're talking about the makeup and, and the, the eye camera. Um, I also yeah. wanted to mention this is, I don't even know how many times uh, Ashley has alluded to or, or there's been some reference to Ashley perhaps losing an eye. Um I'm sure we won't see any more mentions of Ashley losing an eye. <laughs> it's a uh, number two, number two, Matt. Is it okay? Yeah, um, yeah, and like I, this whole interaction is another great set of character interactions because Kenzie is sticking this thing into her eye, and the whole point of it is that before it actually gets too deep into her eye as to cause damage, it's going to like teleport to an alternate dimension or something, and she's like counting down and says, "Oh." forgot to turn it on like she's about to stick it in her eye and it's just like you're reading this whole interaction and they're kind of joking and you're just like 
these people are insane. Yeah. And I love that Aaron is there to be our straight man because she, right. she just completely has the heebie-jeebies and, and can't deal with yeah. it. And everyone Absolutely. else is just like so inured to this cape shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Speaking of Aaron, when they finish the eye makeup for Ashley, Aaron asks to take a picture, which a lot of readers are very suspicious about. Yeah, including me, Matt. Because you, you might be paranoid about Byron and convinced that Byron's doing doing something but i'm on the errands a secret spy train and everyone's coming aboard um i have very little support to back this up of course there, there's nothing as as concrete as enjoys eating chocolate or anything but uh but i'm watching you aaron i'm watching well, you she that is your real name she did buy the chocolate <laughs> exactly what maybe was these in two that are chocolate? maybe we combine our paranoia into both of them are working together oh my god aaron slipped him something with the chocolate bar <gasps> there it is yep we cracked we, it we did we cracked it yeah um i mean the, the the cool thing about this is is as much as i acknowledge that there is some stuff that could be interpreted shady about aaron there is a way to interpret this thing as as completely explained away as a person who is an admitted cape nerd who is really into capes. So of course she's going to want a picture of the cape she just helped decorate. Of course she's going to be asking questions about the details of the powers and things that they're talking about. If you're just a person who's really into cape, she is still asking a lot of questions, though. Yeah. I'm, I'm watching you, Aaron. I mean, what is she I'm watching well, you. She's in their headquarters. She shouldn't be there, right? Yeah. I'm sure yeah. she's innocent, though. <laughs> um, Byron. It's Byron. <laughs> it's Byron. Like yeah, it's Byron. Uh, so rain ends up snapping at kinsey really fairly mildly actually mm -hmm. in fact i barely even read it as a as a snap um and then he goes outside to kind of take a break and, and cool off uh mainly taking a break from his frustrating tinkering attempts yeah you read it as as mild i read it as mild kenzie doesn't react to it but that's because kenzie is pretty good at hiding reactions to things. But this is the kind of thing, based on if we take Houndstooth at, at face value, the kind of things that would, would set Kenzie on a, I have to prove my worth to this person. I have to go above and beyond and kind of go a little crazy with it. And that's that's potentially very dangerous. Yeah. Well, it's, it's clear after Rain leaves that it did bother her, even though yeah. in the moment it didn't seem to. Right. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's walking on eggshells type situation. Yeah, and, and the thing I liked about this is is we get this little beat here hidden amongst all this character interactions about uh, the rain, the connecting plates he builds that connect mm -hmm. his arms to his spinal cord or to his brain, the way that connection works. And we get a very clear understanding that this is a technology that Kenzie does not understand. Like she does not get fundamentally get how that part of the technology works. And I remember, I think a few weeks ago, reading a, a theory about how maybe Rain's power is not the arm specifically, but how they interact and, and create a connection to the brain as easily as they do. Because this seems like something that for Rain is really easy. Like that part of the technology is something that he doesn't question or doesn't have a hard time understanding. It's just the other parts. So uh, this could be setting up something in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was reminded of, of kind of that moment when Kid Wynn goes from being very frustrated with his tinkering to suddenly, like, like quite suddenly becoming fairly competent just because he kind of understands what his specialty is. Right. Right. Um, I'm not, you know, we've, we've, I've kind of been convinced that Rain's powers are actually pretty garbage. Um, so I'm not really expecting like a sudden clutch realization that, 
oh, his tinkering power is actually amazing, but it's possible that there's some kind of hidden gem in there to be yeah, uh, I th- to be found. I think you're right. And I, I like narratively, I like the idea of a cape with just garbage powers, just like just dealing with the fact that you live in a world of horrible death people and you're just kind of mediocre. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's that's really interesting. Yeah, me too. So suddenly, a large group of approaching capes pops up on the scopes, and the team realizes that Advance Guard is making their move into Cedar Point without being invited. Twelve capes. Oh yeah, it's these assholes. All of Victoria's reactions with them have been super positive, and nothing has gone wrong. This is perfect. Yeah, looking forward to this. Mm-hmm. So Chris heads out immediately to be in place if needed. He tells Kenzie not to record him. Suspicious. Um... <laughs> Ashley is already out there uh, doing her covert villain thing. Tristan takes the leadership seat pretty pretty quickly and tells Victoria to hold back while giving her a nonverbal hand sign that she can't really make sense of. Suspicious. Right. Um, Scott, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah, I have absolutely no idea. And I think I, like everyone else in the world, probably like put my hand out to try to mimic what this thing because because she described it as flat, but at an angle. So is it like is it like this or is it like like this? This is terrible audio, but I'm holding my hand up and it's like, is it like maybe trying to say like fly? Like, is he trying to be like fly away, Victoria? I, I don't know. The the interesting thing about this, though, is Tristan does this. Victoria says OK and Tristan nods. So Victoria just <laughs> agreed with whatever he said without really understanding what it was. So they he now thinks they're on the same page without really getting what he meant. And that's not that's not a great start to this whole conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and and I, I kind of interpret it as like. As like back off, let me take point. Which just the fact that we both came to different conclusions proves that it was not, you know, correctly received by Victoria. Right. Certainly, well, and it, it it's not the first time that they have communicated nonverbally, right? They, there's been a couple times in the last arc that we saw them both like look up and make eye contact, and Victoria thought. Is he agreeing with me about this thing I just happen to be thinking about at this moment? And she just kind of assumes that he is, and. Maybe we're seeing the reverse of that. So maybe, I mean, the, the, that that Tristan is now assuming that Victoria is on the same page that he is, even though they they don't appear to be. Yeah, no, I, I think that's um, somewhat likely, actually. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I'm so confused about what's going on, and I think you know what we're meant to be. Um, so yeah, yeah. yeah, I can't currently say anything. So now we watch the Hollow Point villains congregate and and. Uh, meet the advanced guard capes. Swansong, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, not Swansong yet, right? Uh, Damsel yeah. pos- positions herself with the villains. Yeah, which is, uh, so, I mean, Kenzie specifically labels her that, and Victoria says, no, she's not She's not officially taken that name yet, but her label it something else, uh, which is interesting because, I mean, Ashley seemed all for the name, right? Like, it was other people that had resistance to the, the um, the meaning behind the name, not not Ashley, but I guess we're not ready to to stick that label on her yet. Yeah, Victoria seems to take the code names very seriously, mm-hmm. which goes all the way back to uh, Jester in the first arc. <laughs> right. Yeah. Poor Jester. Yeah. 
So Advanced Guard says their agenda is to break up the Hollow Point villain group and that they're just going to do this under their own direction. Uh, but events in the next chapter do suggest that this might just be a cover story. Mm-hmm. Allegedly, it was our jokester from Kings of the Hill, Foxtrot, that made Advanced Guard aware of the Hollow Point situation. Again, I'm less sure how true this is. Advanced Guard also lets on about the flying cameras. And I feel like this detail indicates that Advanced Guard is trying to actively sabotage the Misfit Toys. And it's not all just a bad coincidence, but I'm not too sure about that. Yeah, I mean, I I think these two beats can do a couple things, right? I mean, I think, and they, they might be equally likely. Like, first, as you said, they do confirm that the Advanced Guard are lying through their teeth, which... Later, we we basically say outright that they are being kind of dishonest, that that from the looks of things as we end the third chapter, um, this is this was just a big distraction in order to get someone inside uh, Prancer's headquarters to, to check something out. Um, so they, they they are aware of Azure. They are aware that the Misfit Toys are operating there. And either they have like a power that senses the cameras or they're just like they've just hacked the feed or something and they just know exactly where they are and where they're pointed. I mean, I it could be either in this world with capes. You never know. Yeah. Your use of the word hack makes me think of the attempt to hack Carol's right. email. I'm like, OK, yeah, maybe that was yeah. whatever agent is behind this move. Right. And the other possibility, of course, is that this is just here to show how um, naive the misfit toys plan had been throughout this thing so far the, like the, the, these things that they were counting on were not stable in the first place they were counting on the fact that as they involved more and more groups in this plan of theirs um none of them were going to communicate to anyone else about anything they were counting on the fact that nobody would be able to detect kenzie's cameras and kenzie's uh, spy mechanisms they were counting on the fact that as violence inevitably ramps up in hollow point that the chaos would all be focused in one direction that it would all be the villain scrambling and nothing else they were counting on all these things and we're seeing all these things fall apart in this one moment and this was a bad it was a bad plan it's a bad call ripley <laughs> i knew you were going there yeah <laughs> yeah it was so pretty you know brazenly advanced guard attacks and the battle begins we finally see prancer's power which we've been waiting for for a while a breaker form it seems to be a mover power in application sprite seems to copy prancer's power and then he copies ashley's power immediately afterward suggesting a strong trump element love lost uses her emotion attack scream which we've also been waiting to see and mm-hmm. the capes she impacts are strongly affected with Resound basically going to a senseless rage. So refresh my memory. Did we know that Love Loss's emotional scream was tied to a specific emo- emotion, was tied to rage at this point? Or is this new information at, in this chapter? I feel like this is new information. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure someone will correct us on that if we're wrong. But um, I think we're learning more about how each one of these cluster have a specific emotion tied to their emotion manipulation power yeah i think that's i think that's correct uh and this chapter ends with victoria saying i'm going and tristan saying we're coming and me saying damn it victoria caution prudence call your lawyer like you said you would (laughs) right i mean this is like literally the exact kind of scenario that natalie told victoria they should probably call her on before jumping into action like like literally like like call call me first yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, and I think we're going to have a chance to get into this more, but like, what is the plan? Just like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, we're going in. Okay, what is the tactical mission? Right, yeah. And I think that's key to the kind of the confusion of the actions going into this next chapter. Yeah. Speaking of which, 5.3, the team continues to get ready for battle. Rain asks what he can do, and Tristan tells him he can come if he's up for it, uh, which just seems like a god-awful idea and a huge risk for, for for no real upside. Basically, we've got one more person with shite powers on the battlefield in exchange for exposing one of your teammates to people who want to kill him. Like, I would go out of my way to keep Rain away from this battlefield. Yeah. So then Tristan invites Kinsey to come along too, even though he kind of just said something about her coming along someday, uh, that is, not soon. Uh, Some people have theorized that Tristan wants everybody out of the HQ for some reason. He even specifically tells Aaron to leave, too. I I don't know if that, I mean, that might be true. I I don't know why that would be. And all of this kind of just adds up to, yeah, something's up. Yeah, something is absolutely up. And and you're right. In in the last chapter, we drew specific attention to the fact that Tristan, when describing Kenzie and Kenzie's joining of the battlefield removes the expression soon. Um, Kenzie calls this out and said, before you were saying you'll join us on the battlefield someday soon. And now he has switched to someday without the soon. And Kenzie calls him out on that. That's the story. That's the book telling us, hey, guys, this is important. And now we have Tristan completely abandoning that and, and bringing Kenzie's, Kenzie because, well, he promised. And yes, and yes, he brings Rain too because it might be best to have everyone along in some capacity. Here's my question though, Matt. Why? Like, Victoria specifically wants to go because she wants to figure out what the hell is going on. Like, she makes it a, a, a kind of her mission statement to get a hold of the advanced guard and figure out why they're here and what they are doing. But the team, the misfit toys, the group, what do they hope to accomplish here? What, what are they going to do? Um, wh- what's, what's their plan? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just don't see it. We see we just got to go. We just got to go. And it's not like they are there to protect Chris and Ashley because Chris and Ashley are out there because they only really interact with them very tangentially throughout the battle. Like they're just... They seem to be holding their own pretty effectively. And in fact, it would be blowing their cover to specifically go out there to assist them. So it's not something they can do. So yeah. Matt, what, what, are they, what are they doing? It's hard for me to not view this as blowing their cover anyway, because they're all going out at the same time. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm really eager to see what, 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 the <laughs> hidden, what the hidden background to all this is. Yeah, there's, there's this one part I really like, though. Victoria is like trying to figure out what she wants to do and what her purpose here. And, and, and she she goes back to her old mantra, Matt. She says, if law, right and wrong and the input of others didn't serve to clarify matters, then I wanted to do what would weigh on me the least. I was glad that those least weighty things were often lawful and right ones. So she goes back to her old mantra, her old her old rock of figuring out what to do. But now she's added a fourth thing this time. So she said, the law, I can't, the law is not going to be clear on what to do. Right and wrong is hazy. I can't reach out to anyone in this moment. I don't have time. So all I can do is, is do, I guess, whatever makes me feel the least guilty, which in this case is rushing into battle. (laughs) Yeah, right. 
it also made me wonder um like how would victoria react if what was clearly right to her uh came in conflict with the law yeah especially yeah. because we know that the legal system is evolving and it may come down in a way where victoria actually rearranges her mantra a little bit because she doesn't like the law you know yeah i i this this mantra is something that you know we've been repeated a few times throughout the arc but we're we're hitting again and again and again uh, a few times throughout the, the the story rather but we're hitting it a lot in this the early parts of this arc so i think this is something that's going to be explored or challenged in some way uh, coming up yeah i feel like it's building to something i agree yeah uh, yeah, so uh, as they get dressed, uh, Sveta makes fun of Victoria's costume, um, <laughs> which made me think of something. I wonder, there's a lot going on between Sveta and Victoria in this chapter, and it made me wonder if some of it isn't a bit of jealousy, because mm-hmm. they were both quote-unquote freaks together in the asylum. You know, they, they they bonded over the fact that they were both so, you know, monstrous, essentially. Victoria got her body back 100%. Sveta still, you know, she's still a monster within her prosthetic body. It is not at all the same as what Victoria got back. So, I don't know. I just, I don't think we've seen any, you know, strongly convincing indications that there's jealousy between them. Um, but I wouldn't be, you know, surprised to see that. Yeah, I think you're right. You're you're right. There, There is nothing textual there yet that that definitively supports that point of view however i think it is a very natural and human thing to do right like even if even if she is excited and happy for victoria getting her body back even even if she feels excited for her to to move into this new stage of her life there's probably a little part of her that's like i i don't get that i i i don't get to have that same thing and i am a little jealous of her because of that and I think we should we think we should make a note of that and 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 see if we if that becomes a little more textual going forward. Yeah, Let's pay attention to that. So speaking of the two of them, Victoria grabs Sveta and they fly away. But Victoria hesitates enough that Sveta notices. She explains through now typical overly elaborate Victoria <laughs> metaphor that she's trying to figure out what's going on with Tristan. He's either pulling something or he's worried someone else will. I said he's taking possibly unnecessary steps. Yeah. Um, and I think I think Victoria's overly elaborate, confusing metaphor is important here, though, Matt, because what Victoria is talking about is that old uh, river crossing puzzle idea. Um, she she says it's a wolf, a chicken and I think corn. Um, right. But but the animals and food that makes this up have have been different throughout the different variations of this whole thing. Um, there's one where it's a wolf, goat, a goat and some cabbage, which the goat would be especially um, applicable here when we're dealing with Tristan. But but the, the, the whole idea of this is that you don't want to leave certain animals alone together because they will eat them. And if you leave them alone, unchaperoned, things will go bad. So you have to carefully control which things are with which animals and which animals are together alone at the same time as you navigate across the river. So this is 
um, very interesting in, in looking about Victoria's train of thought here that she really does a bad job explaining to Sveta um, that, that she's thinking that Tristan is trying to maneuver things to ensure that certain people are not with other certain people, which is something that we have seen from Victoria and Sveta before as well, that this idea that we shouldn't leave the teenagers with Ashley, um, but but Tristan maybe is trying to, to maneuver something else. Right, because ne- right now, at this moment, we have Kenzie, Tristan, Rain, and Aaron in in the HQ together and he's specifically right. you know and and they're all going to be heading out imminently or or so we believe so I don't really know what to make of that if anything I feel like we're going to learn the answers to all this like literally in the next chapter but yeah like I think as people are listening to this we might already have the answers to this <laughs> entirely possible this is still fun to talk about though yeah of course um and Sveta kind of senses this apprehension and this idea that there might be something amiss with the team. And she says, I don't want to make this mistake again. And Victoria doesn't know what she's talking about, but we know what she's talking about. Uh, this idea of joining a team that turns out to be rotten at its core. Um, interestingly, that was a team where Weld himself, the guy who Yamada was thinking about inviting into this role that Victoria has, Weld already failed to correct course in a very similar situation. Yeah. yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, and it is kind of heartbreaking when you think about it. And it makes me wonder, Sveta, this person all about the optimism of the future, these new opportunities in this new tomorrow. Um, how would she take the news if she learned that Jessica specifically sent her here to sniff out the rot that might be at the at the core of this group, the, the badness that might be here? Um, how would she take that? Probably not very well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, see, I don't see now. I know you're not just being coy and, and hiding things from me when you say that. Like, yeah, I don't know. was your coy answer when you actually knew what I was talking about. But you don't know anymore. No, I, I just don't know. <laughs> I don't have anything smart to say there. Um, yeah. So as they're as they're flying along, the two of them catch a glancing blow of Love Lost's power and it hits both of them pretty hard. And they land, watching Love Lost and Nailbiter chase Sprite and Prancer. Uh, I love Nailbiter's appearance. Half crocodile, half scarecrow, it's described as. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, this is another one of those nightmare powers that once you fully grasp like what is happening with it, exactly how it's working, you're like, oh god, that's horrible. But also awesome? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Yeah, I mean, like, it's... it's uh, you immediately, like, get it as a power. Like, oh, yeah, I, I see... I see why that's a thing a shard would do, um, but it's also just like a horrifying like horror movie monster. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I want to touch on on Love Loss's power hitting Sveta for a bit here, though, because I think this is important. Because we have we have this beat where Sveta seems like really like this has really fucked her up. Like this rage power has like really caused her to completely lose control, and it's it's way more than for Victoria, right? And and Victoria explains this in a couple ways. First, she says that. As she said before, her emotional power makes it so other emotional powers work less on her. But she also says that um, rage is not her weak point. She says, Snag had hit me hard because he'd hit me where it hurt most. My rage? It was there, beneath the surface. But it wasn't a weak point. It was a regular point. Um, so Victoria admits here that Snag's power, which which we saw, made her feel this deep, deep sense of loss, um, really fucked her up. But rage, not so much. 
But for Sveta and that, our little our little tentacle girl who could, rage is the thing that she's been fighting against her entire life, right? This this losing control to anger, this losing control of her body to this uncontrollable anger is what she's been struggling against. And we see here that she has lost it. She's lost control. The, the thumping against her body that we saw set up in last arc is even more pronounced now. Um, and this got me thinking, this got me thinking a little bit about this idea that we have these broken characters, these, these misfit toys, um, these guys that are all suffering from this deep emotional trauma. And the first thing they have to fight, Matt, the first thing that they're up against, their first real enemies in this story is a gang of people whose power is literally able to attack them with the very emotions that they're trying to overcome. Snag directly confronts Victoria with the things that she has lost. Love Lost directly feeds into Sveta's uh, uncontrollable rage. Uh, We haven't seen what Cradle can do yet, but I'm sure that's going to be interesting. And... And if, if this book, if this book is about healing and this book is about growth and, and, and moving on from these traumas, then it appears what we're saying with this group is that that step one or one of the first steps has to be facing these emotions that, that pull you under, that make you feel like you're drowning head on and and punching them in the face. <laughs> because that's the cool thing about genre fiction, Matt, is that. You can manifest your personal demons into things that you can punch in the face. Yeah. Which is make, great. Make the metaphor literal and then yeah. and then do something literal to it. Yep. Yeah. You, you've given me this idea just now that maybe the, the, the personality bleed concept has made it so that the defining emotions of each of the cluster members has swapped in terms of what their power is. So like love lost, her kind of dominant emotion should be loss, but her power is rage. Mm-hmm. Rain's mm-hmm. original dominant emotion was rage, but his power is doubt. Mm-hmm. Snag, I don't. We don't know him well enough to know what his original state of mind was, but his power is lost, which should have, should have been what was associated with love lost. Yeah, we don't. Again, we don't know what cradles is either. I have this sense though that like it, it's it's you know you would expect love lost to have the loss power right so right. i think i think they're all switched around from what you would expect them to be but i think yeah. it's probably still consistent that's super interesting and that makes me really want to figure out what the the, the details of cradle's power yeah yeah we'll see we'll see if there's anything to that mm-hmm. so love lost cuts loose again as sprite escapes from their pursuit and victoria learns that solid objects block the effect of her power uh, Wild Bow throws us a little primer on breaker powers and how they're distinct from changers and how people are confused about this uh, in in the story world, uh, quote-unquote, playground arguments and online debates, <laughs> which is fun and meta because apparently readers have the same confusion as well. Yeah, it's this great little moment because it's like a re-education for the readers. And I think it's one of those things that we specifically said we wanted to point out as part of a serialized story because Wild Bow gets to... It, it, it is key to the understanding of things that happen that you understand how a breaker power works. And he understands through his interaction with the community that this is something that's a little more confusing uh, that people tend to get wrong a lot. So uh, why don't I just explain it to them again? Problem yeah. solved. And and the thing that I like here, the cool part about this is Wildbo doesn't just drop this in here for us in some exposition. He ties it into the story itself because um as we're parsing this through Victoria's mind, as she's thinking about the breaker powers, as she's thinking about describing them for us, as as the story is dumping this exhibition for us, it ties it back to Victoria's state of mind because she says 
it was good to think about the mechanic sides of powers, to dwell on the fact that to dwell on fa- in fact and things that made me think of reading Kate magazines in bed and talking to Dean. So we got this this moment that is basically literally just there to teach us, the reader, some some expository information on how these powers work. But he takes the time to tie it into the the mindset of our our main character because we we have not moved to the third person perspective we are still in first person point of view so we have to make it clear why victoria is thinking these things at this time and i i like that the story takes times to do that i I really appreciate it yeah it feels organic i mean i yeah I, i i happen to know that that the actual fandom is confused about the difference between a breaker and a changer so it was a little little joke but it, it, it's not like that took me out of the story or anything like that right right um i wanted to talk about uh victoria she, she tells basically she tells um sveta go after love lost you you're allowed to hurt her because she hurt resound um but only hurt her 75 percent as badly as she hurt someone else and I'm not sure how I feel about this, actually, because, like, first of all, people always perceive harm done against them as greater than it objectively is. So, like, two people who are punching each other, quote-unquote, the same, will escalate how hard they're punching until they're trying to kill each other. Um, So, I I guess toning it down 75% could avoid that, but it really relies on an incredible amount of control to actually achieve. Yeah, which is the one thing uh, Sveta is not, not great with. Yeah, um, but it's the old, the old most of an eye for an eye strategy, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think I think on the surface this is this is a controlled, well thought out plan that kind of specifically sets out to limit limit how much pain you're going to dish out. But yeah, the the, the restrictions here are not well defined, and it, and it could lead to uh to some bad stuff happening. And also, like Sveta's reaction to this is like she doesn't want to do that. She's like she made her bleed a lot. You can make her bleed a little. And Sveta shudders is like, she doesn't want that violent, that overly violent thing. Cause that's where she was coming from. Right. Right. Yeah. No, like that, that's, I don't think, I don't know if Victoria has thought very hard about what Sveta's here for because Sveta wants to do the Cape stuff so she can be a hero. Like, like weld. Yeah. Um, she doesn't want to hurt people at all. I think, um, which, can be a liability in a situation like this yeah yeah so yeah sveta goes after love lost and victoria's plan is to go after sprite and figure out what's going on but nailbiter intercepts her and then we get this pretty awesome terrifying fight where nailbiter is using her needle thin but strong and extremely long fingers and projected teeth at extreme range to try to skewer victoria whose shield can only really take one hit so she's having to dodge and, and evade and pull up her shield at the last second to absorb these these piercing strikes that are coming in rapid fire. It's really tense. Yeah, yeah. And if I had one small critique of of this fight is that I think it gets so crazy that we kind of lose the the thread a little bit. Um, that like I I lost the geography of what was happening and where people were a little bit throughout the latter half of this fight. And I had to go back and reread a couple times to make sure I, I understood exactly what was happening. Um, and that's, I think that's just a symptom of the, the really hectic nature of it. But I, I, I had difficulty tracking some of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if I, if I also had trouble and just didn't notice or if I didn't have trouble. 
or if those things are indistinguishable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. The, there's there's this moment when Victoria collides with this dumpster thing. I, I wasn't sure what that was while we're talking about things that we're not entirely sure about. Well, you clearly had trouble following things because Victoria does not hit the dumpster. <laughs> so Nailbiter hits the dumpster. So I, I, the the understanding is there's this there's this column that or or, or thing that appears in front of Victoria that blocks her path and she tries to dodge it and it moves to intercept her position and she ends up like running straight long into it and it bumps into the dumpster which causes the dumpster to shatter so my understanding of this because after after we cut to this is um we see love loss is standing with with Nailbiter and her hands are together kind of controlling it so my understanding was she like extended her hands to block and her arms to block Victoria's way. And then when she moved, like moved her fingers to block that more. And so it was nail biters, arms, extended arms that were bumping into the dumpster and causing it to, to break open. But yeah, that was, I had to read that a few times to, to get there. Okay. Yeah. That, that was the only bit actually where I was not sure what was going on. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's a very small portion of this thing, but yeah, yeah. But, no, yeah. It, it, it was, I just, I was hoping that, I, that there was just a clear answer that I was just like not parsing. So Victoria claws her way out of Nailbiter's grasp and flies out of sight, reflecting briefly on possible reasons why Love Lost didn't just use her scream when she seemed to have a shot. Yeah, yeah, which we find out later is her trying to like reason through how her power works in mm-hmm. a in a very Taylor esque manner, but I think distinctly not as good at it as Taylor <laughs> is. Um, the most important part of this to me which lines up to what I was talking to you about earlier is that Victoria says instincts told me to press forward. I wanted to go after Sprite or remove the threat. I stopped instead. There was a limit to how fast and how far they could travel. I had a second. So back to what we were talking about in chapter one, we have this, this choice between scalding hot or freezing cold and Victoria does not pick either extreme. Victoria goes through the minute and and just kind of hovers and waits for a second and, and, and thinks things out before she acts. I do find your Taylor comparison very interesting because I think part of the reason Taylor is better at this kind of thing is that Taylor's reaction would not be to pause. It would be to provoke and then observe the reaction. Um, But then that would lead to the escalation that Victoria Mm -hmm. is trying to avoid. Yeah. So there is a good reason why she doesn't do that, but it also makes her mildly less combat effective. That's a very cool, Mm -hmm. cool comparison. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Luxy now texts Victoria, making herself useful and letting Victoria know that the coast is clear. Victoria flies up and then sees Chris, and I'm just going to read this whole thing. Please do. It was a face six feet tall, three feet wide, with no cheeks or anything but a spine connecting the top half from the lower half, as if the chin and bottom row of teeth were the head of an insect, the rest of the head the thorax. The setup was surrounded by a ring of spider-like legs in varying shapes and sizes. They looked like flesh and not chitin, though muscular meat with a pronounced elbow coming to a pointed tip where it touched the ground or face. He jerked and twitched, large eyes wide, and some of the legs seemed to be more focused on clawing at his own face than on keeping him mobile. I would have said it was like someone dragging his fingernails across his cheeks, but he didn't have any cheeks. (laughs) So yeah, I feel like Chris's shard attached to him and started looking around for reference points to base its changer forms on and found Chris's giant wall of horror manga and was like, perfect. 
<laughs> yeah, um, I don't read manga, but sure. Uh, I'm curious, do you think there's a big difference between like what mad anxiety looks like and what like other emotion anxiety looks like? Or is like anxiety... I mean, clearly he mentioned anxiety was the one where he was going to climb up walls, which seems to be this one. But um, I wonder I wonder how the second emotion impacts what he looks like. Yeah, like I thought maybe like one of them is the power and one of them is the form. But yeah, um, that could be that could be but that's just a guess. Really, we've only seen a couple of these and I don't think we have enough to make a yeah. pattern. So yeah, Mad Anxiety and Love Lost have a good old fashioned scream off. Neither really seems to affect the other and Chris skitters away <laughs> so so is this just the the greatest part of worm so far or ward so far or is this is this me is this, it's, it's, it's just pretty, it's pretty great just love lost and and chris spider just screaming at each other back and forth and like i know i know for a fact i read it multiple times that's only like a few seconds of this but in my head this goes on for like five minutes and everyone else is like standing around and they're not sure what to do and they're like looking at each other as these two people scream at each other back and forth. And they're like, so do we like fight or what do we do now? Yeah. I mean, it's particularly great because Love Lost is like very serious and angry. Right. And she's caught kind of like flat footed in the situation where her power doesn't work, but she keeps trying anyway. And there's a giant head spider monster thing yeah. screaming back at and, and the fact that he that his scream is like a scream of mortal terror yeah. Which is just confusing to you. You're, like, <laughs> like if, if you're fighting him, you're like, what the hell? What? And then he runs away in the in a creepy, you know, serpentine way. It's, yeah. I just love it so much. I guess the important implications of this, though, is that, that Chris, um, at least while in these forms, seems to be immune to any kind of emotional manipulation, which is yeah. probably going to be pretty key. Right. He probably just feels the thing he's supposed to feel. Yeah. So Love Lost and Nailbiter work together to go after Victoria again, but Sveta snags Love Lost with an extendo arm and tugs her into a fall that'll hopefully injure her, but turns out <laughs> probably doesn't very much. Hopefully. Um, Damsel shows up and says, I'll deign to let you two help me against the wannabe Alexandria and the girl with the paint. Burn, Ashley. It took me a second to determine that that she was referring to Alec to Victoria with wannabe Alexandria. Yeah. And I was like, damn. Um, I do think it's pretty great that that Ashley in the in the middle of all this kind of chaos is like still smart enough not to blow her cover and is still there just like playing the villain. Yeah. Yeah. Very clutch. So Victoria carries Sveta away. Uh, but when Nailbiter goes to attack, Victoria reflexively hurls Sveta away from herself, unsure what the wretch would do if she activated her force field while holding Sveta. After she gets away, Sveta wants to understand why Victoria did that, and Victoria finally tells her that she has a control issue. There's certainly a feeling of a breach of trust and hurt feelings between the two friends. Oh, yeah, yeah. You get the feeling that that this was a pretty fundamental like break in the strength of the relationship, because so far throughout the, this whole thing, they were really close together. They were constantly comforting each other. Anytime something bad happens, they're like holding hands and comforting each other. And now she's she's lied to her. She's left something out. And 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 trust is something that I think is so important to Sveta. Um, and, and I like how in order to frame the seriousness of this moment, the seriousness of this breach of trust, Sveta goes back to the idea that Victoria brought up early on in the fight about Tristan, the idea of the river crossing problem, the wolf and the chicken and the corn. And it's almost as if to apply here that, that may imply here that maybe 
Victoria being paired with Sveta was leaving the wolf and the chicken alone together. And I think that kind of shows like how much how much of this 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 breach of trust ha- is weighing on Sveta in this moment. Yeah, I mean it's it's entirely plausible that like like I think Sveta is durable enough that if the wretch had pierced her carapace all that would have happened is Sveta would now have been freed to kill everyone which mm-hmm. you can imagine someone wanting that to happen for for some reason you know yeah so yeah. um yeah no this it's very interesting also i like that this is one of those instances where point of view has really kind of skewed how we perceive things because we're so used to victoria hiding the existence of the wretch from everyone literally everyone that it it kind of shocks us when we realize like oh people are people are going to be mad when they realize that, that that she's been hiding this you know rather strong liability she's carrying around yeah yeah it's understandable but it's still surprising it's not something that occurred to me it's not something that i was like oh i'm i'm worried about when people are going to find out you know but we should have been honestly yeah i think you're absolutely right so they follow sprite to his destination prancer's headquarters victoria moves to physically confront him but he just uses flight her flight probably to evade her and the chapter ends with her demanding fucking why yeah and i love I love, first of all, that she she goes back to refer to him in a, a phrase that Ashley would use. Uh, she calls him, him and the entire advance guard blithering idiots. When you start when you start picking up Ashley's verbiage, maybe that's a sign <laughs> that there's an issue. But I do like in this moment going back to that shower and the 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 extreme heat or or extreme cold. After she tries to grab this guy outright, she kind of takes a step back and realizes she needs to be a little more diplomatic here. And and yes, she she points a finger at, at him as very accusatory, but she doesn't go fully into it. She doesn't go fully into just like punching this guy in the face and kicking this guy's ass and losing her shit on him. She she clearly is going to try to handle this in a diplomatic matter. Yeah, yeah. And and that's that's cool. I, I'm now wondering if uh, when he copied her power, he also copied the wretch, and we're going to have a horrible thing happen shortly. Yeah, but that's um, that's 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 a good point. We'll I had see. not considered that. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> and that wraps up the first three chapters of Arc Five Shadow. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of name game. We kind of already talked about Swan Song. This idea that it's like the final performance. Yeah which is ominous for someone who keeps making references to having their eye put out and <laughs> expects to not be a hero for very long. Yeah. Um, the, the other one was a nail biter, but I think that's like, I think that's like fairly straightforward. straightforward. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's cool cause it's got a double meaning. It's like, yes, she has nail teeth, but also like nail biting is nervousness right. you know right, so it's, right it's clever i like it yeah I, mm-hmm. I, I, it's, it's awesome all right so so this next week's discussion question um i tried to work on the wording for this one maybe uh yeah so victoria's mantra or problem solving workflow is to follow the law failing that to do what seems right and if that's not clear to reach out to others for guidance so the question is to discuss the strengths and weaknesses of this approach. 
I am super interested to see what people think about this thing. Um, and, and I, I encourage you guys to discuss this. You can discuss this within the context of the world of, of parahumans and ward specifically, but also, you know, maybe get a little more abstract with it. Like discuss this just independent of the, the novel itself. What do you think of this, uh, this philosophy in general? Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to see the answers to this. Me too. Me too. Very excited. And that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. Remember that you guys are all part of the show now, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, and Matt's is at Mordina Screaming Face Guy. That's right. And if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so. And never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week over on the main feed, Matt and I got together to finally talk about film and film criticism and film theory on YouTube. We talked about some of our favorite channels that do this and just the idea of of youtube and the visual video essay method for talking about film and uh i think it turned out pretty good matt i think that was a fun conversation yeah we recommended a bunch of channels we like i think that's the the main added value there yeah absolutely so check that out over on the main daily planet podcast feed yeah and if you like any of these shows that we do and you want to support them consider donating to our patreon account patreon.com slash daily planet films you can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford Special thanks to new patron Planeteers, Moonbun and Matthew, both at the $1 level. And as always, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you can't afford to donate right now, that's okay. You can instead go out in the middle of a street and just scream at people until, you know, maybe they scream back. Maybe they go listen to We've Got Bored. I don't know. I don't know. Or you can head all over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Uh, We unfortunately don't have any new reviews to read this week, Matt. Um, I have not gotten my uh, monthly digest of international reviews that I'm supposed to get an email. Uh, I got an email last week that said they were going to be late this month because the guy's, I don't know, he's doing something. Their service is slower. So hopefully next week I'll have some of your international ones to read. Um, But in the meantime, you can help us out by going over to iTunes and leaving that that rating and review. It really does help us, honestly, and we, we do we do appreciate that. So please keep that up. Yeah. All right, that's it for the show this week. Next week, we continue our discussion of Arc 5 Shadow. Shadow, the dog from Homeward Bound. The one that almost died. Main character of of uh, American Gods. Oh, yeah.
the ninja from Final Fantasy VI. Why did I go to the Homeward Bound Dog first? It's weird. <laughs>